Hey guys, you're listening to episode 72 of the Finish Line podcast, where we discuss the intersection of faith, generosity, and personal finance. Today, we're talking to Lane Kipp, founder of All Access International. Hey there, welcome to the show. My name is Cody, and I'm here with my co-host and brother, Keelan. Today, we're talking to Lane Kipp, founder of All Access International. All Access is a pooled granting fund that uses a clear process to find highly effective projects all around the world, tackling spiritual and physical poverty. Lane has a well-rounded, big-picture view of what it takes to sustainably address poverty in the ways that we give, and you won't want to miss what he has to say. Before we get started, I just wanted to remind you guys that everything we do here on the Finish Line team is 100% free and always will be. If you're getting a lot out of this podcast and want to help us get the message to others, the best thing you can do for us right now is to leave us a review on Apple Podcasts. And of course, don't forget to subscribe to the show so you're the first to know when new episodes come out. And with that, let's get to the interview. All right, we're here today. We have Lane Kipp joining us. Thanks so much for being here, Lane. Yeah, thanks for having me. Can you get us started today and just tell us a little bit about yourself and where you come from? Yeah, so I am from a small town in southeast Texas called Jasper and grew up in the faith there, but really just came to know Jesus just when I was probably 11 or 12, just reading the Gospels for myself and was just trying to figure out if this thing is legit or not and fell in love with Jesus, but didn't really know what to do with that because, you know, most people were just still kind of chasing the American dream. And so that's what I did. So graduated high school, went to Texas A&M. You know, if you're good at math, people tell you do engineering. So I did engineering. (laughs) And so I studied ocean engineering, which most people go into offshore oil and gas kind of in Houston. But I was really interested in kind of the boat and yacht sector. And so graduated from Texas A&M. My wife and I got married and then moved to Orlando, Florida, where I was a naval architect for a boat company called Regal Boats. That was my dream job. That was it. And loved it, loved everything about it, but really had a crisis of faith, just trying to figure out what am I doing with my life and how is this aligned with kind of the gospel and the Jesus that I came to know and follow in high school. And so we kind of started praying the dangerous prayer of, okay, Lord, if there's something else, we're in. And about two weeks later, we got a phone call from our friends in Haiti And they said, hey, what do you think about moving down here? And so we thought about it. It was a really hard decision. But, you know, at the time, you know, no house, no kids. If we didn't do it then, when did we ever? And so we did the whole, you know, sell your stuff and move down to Haiti. And then less than six months in, we actually had to evacuate on February 13th, 2019. And it just got really violent in Haiti as a whole and also our area and at the same time, the organization we were with wasn't sending missionaries back down. And so virtually overnight, we ended up here in Dallas. I had started taking classes at DTS online while I was in Haiti. And we just decided, you know what, let's get our feedback under us, finish out the program, DTS, and then kind of reevaluate from there. And that's when really all the research for All Access started. And here we are today. We live in 
the mid-cities of DFW. We've been here about three and a half years, almost four years. And my wife works at the Children's Hospital in Fort Worth. And we have a daughter who just turned 15 months old. And so we're having a lot of fun. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more of a deeper dive into what that initial kind of research process looked like. I know that has evolved a lot since that time. And I'd love to see how God started working in your heart through that. Yeah, it was, you know, all access, to be honest, I really didn't set out to start an organization. I just honestly became obsessed with what we experienced in Haiti and a lot of the research I was diving into. And so all access really just was a result of that experience and the research, particularly on unreached people groups, extreme physical poverty and the charity sector, you know, the industry we trust to fix this giant social problem. And what I discovered, I mean, both blew my mind and really changed the entire trajectory of my life. And it was really two things. The first one being that it can end. Spiritual and physical poverty can be ended. We live at a time of incredible missional opportunity, just with the technology that's there, the research, the experts, the organizations, the funding, the donors. It's all there. I mean, we've never lived a time where we had all these pieces of the puzzle together. We believe, and what we're trying to do is put all these pieces together and just to help expedite this process. And we came up with a strategy that tries to do that. But the second thing I discovered is that we won't end global spiritual and physical poverty if we keep giving and going the way we currently are. Because during this research, I was you know doing a deep dive into a lot of the books that People probably know, like when Helping Herds and maybe Dead Aid, and then some maybe lesser known books among Christians, but pretty well known in the secular development arena by guys like William Easterly and White Man's Burden and Jeffrey Sachs with Ending Poverty. And just the failure of foreign aid over the last 50, 60 years, as well as kind of some of the inefficiencies and ineffectiveness in missions. And it was pretty discouraging, but, you know, I just tried to figure out, okay, what will it take to actually end global spiritual and physical poverty? Is it even possible? And if so, what's the most effective approach? And so, like I said, all access is kind of a result of all this research. And what I did is I really spent several years just talking with experts and a lot of people who know a lot more than I do to this same question I just asked you was, what will it take to actually end poverty? And all access as a result of putting all their recommendations, their suggestions, their expertise into a funnel and then kind of boiling it down to something that was useful to something that doesn't already exist that could really expedite the process by helping put those pieces together. And so that's what we're trying to do is put those pieces together and help good organizations keep doing what they're already really good at and stay out of the way and help donors connect with those good organizations and help the experts help their findings be used in the field and just really better accountability all around. And so that's what we're trying to do. And we're about two and a half years into it and it seems to be helping or at least I hope. Lane, I'm curious from your perspective, what's the connection between spiritual and physical poverty and do your methods to alleviate each overlap much? Yeah, it's a good question. And it's a fairly complex one. 
And so because our mission is ending both spiritual and physical poverty, because we see that God cares about both of those, we obviously want to address both of those. But the problem is when you look at the data, which we're very metric driven, very data driven, the data takes you to two different places for places in the most extreme spiritual poverty and the places in the most extreme physical poverty. And so the metrics that we use are the Joshua Project for spiritual poverty. So looking at unreached people groups, people who don't have access to the gospel. And then for extreme physical poverty, we're looking at what's called the multidimensional poverty index that was developed by Oxford's Poverty and Human Development Initiative. And it's really cool. And to kind of sidetrack a second, that MPI, the multidimensional poverty index, is really what we saw when we're really deep diving into the research that makes all of this possible. Because what it is and what the Joshua Project does as well is it breaks spiritual and physical poverty down into these measurable metrics. It defines it, you know, less than 2% of the population are believers. That's kind of spiritual poverty. And then for multidimensional poverty, it's basically three dimensions of 10 indicators. And it's very objective. For example, like water, it's, is it more than a 15 minute one-way walk to a water source? If it's more than that, they don't have practical access to water. And there's nine others just like that. But what it also does is it breaks all this data down into sub-national regions. And so we can look in a very specific region of Uganda, for example, and see, okay, what percentage of the population lacks access to water? What percentage of the population that lacks access to sanitation? And so it takes this giant problem of you know physical and spiritual poverty and breaks it down into something that's all these little tangible pieces that we can focus on and improve. And so when you do that, like I said, the data takes you to two different places. And so for spiritual poverty, it's mostly South Asia. For physical poverty, it's mostly Sub-Saharan Africa. And our philosophy is to try to work in the most extreme places first and work backwards from there. And then listen to the experts as well on, hey, is there one area that we need to focus on now because of either what's happening politically or just emergency with flooding or famine that helps get us to this one day where all people have access the most. And so because we are a pooled giving fund where people give to our collective fund, hundred percent goes to the projects. We kind of add like a grant making organization. And so what we try to do because the data is in two different places is try to see it down the line around 50, 50 where 50% of the grants go to what we would call projects focused on spiritual poverty because they're trying to improve a specific metric on the Joshua project and then 50% towards physical poverty. So trying to provide access to clean water and, you know, it's in all reality, physical poverty projects are a lot more expensive than spiritual poverty. You know, we're talking about infrastructure. And so that's kind of the way we try to manage is 50, 50 down the line, but our donors and our members of the collective fund also have a say in this because they can give directly to specific projects. So if someone's feeling more led to plant churches among unreached people groups in Bangladesh, they can. Or if they want to focus on clean water access, they can do that as well. Until we know otherwise, or if there's other ways that experts say, hey, we need to focus on all of this or all of that, that's kind of how we've divided it up. But we do see typically see an overlap in particularly physical poverty that some of the most sustainable methods for alleviating physical poverty are also spiritual. And so 
all of our projects are run by believers. That's just what we found to be most effective because they share that long-term vision of, hey, it's not just about this life, but eternally. And physical poverty, some of the most sustainable methods are those that actually include behavioral changes, which we would, as Christians, would say, yeah, that, that's us. We don't want to do some of these things that we did in the past. Or you know, like in Sub-Saharan Africa, it's a great thing if you believe, hey, I don't want to kill that person or I don't want to steal from that person. That's actually bettering the community as a whole and a part of helping the community escape poverty. So to answer your question, the data is divided, but the implementation is usually actually kind of both sectors. And we see this on the spiritual poverty side as well, that pretty much all of our projects are making disciples and planting churches. But the fruit of that is taking care of the people around them. That's a sign of a healthy church. Yeah, that's interesting. I want to get back to that in just a second. There were a couple references there I just wanted to point out for anybody that's interested. You mentioned When Helping Hurts by Brian Ficker and Steve Corbett. And we had the fortune to have Brian Fickert back on episode 42, if anybody wants to do a little bit more of a deep dive on what he had to say. And we also had Dan Scribner, the director of the Joshua Project, on just a couple episodes back on episode 66. So you can learn more about the stuff that those guys are doing back there. So it's interesting what you're saying about the overlap between uh, physical and spiritual poverty. And I'd be interested to hear your take on whether the organizations that tend to blend those two are especially effective or if there's also a strength in really trying to focus on one thing and do it well, because I could kind of see things working out both ways. Yeah, that's a really good question. And, you know, we've seen everything across the board. And I would say the trend, though, is to lean towards those that focus on one specific thing, just because they are really good at that one thing because they just focus on that. And even to a, a greater degree, they're usually regionally led. So they're led by people who are from the region, who speak the language, know the culture, just know the dynamics of what's happening in the country. Those have been tend to be a lot more effective than kind of an outside perspective. But to answer your question, yeah, it's when Organizations focus on one thing, whether that's wash, so water access, sanitation, and hygiene, tend to be better at that than if they focus on everything across the board. And it really depends. We have a wash program in northern Uganda that also includes disciple-making movement, church planning movement type stuff, and it's really, really effective. And then we have stuff in South Asia that is solely focused on training church planning coordinators, those who go and kind of train church planners. And that's all they do. And it's really, really effective. So what's really interesting and also encouraging is that it just depends on the situation because we look at objective metrics and data when we're evaluating these organizations and it just depends. Okay. What does their outputs and outcomes look like? What are the results? And then we just figure out, okay, who produced these results and what are they doing? So, Lane, you gave us a little context on why All Access was started and a little bit of the work that you do. But can you just tell us what is your mission and how do you carry that out on a day-to-day -day basis? Yeah, absolutely. So our mission at All Access is to end spiritual and physical poverty. So to reach the unreached, people who don't have access to the gospel, a believer, a church, 
proving a Bible and to empower those in extreme poverty out of extreme poverty. And that's actually why we called it all access is because we believe all people deserve access to the gospel and the basic means of physical well-being, at least access to it. You know, we can't force them to believe it. We can't force them to use these resources, but they at least deserve access to it. And so that's why we called it all access. But all access really is just a service that provides the strategy we discovered to donors and a very easy to use, you know, friendly service that's free. So what we do is we help people kind of avoid wasted generosity by maximizing their impact towards ending spiritual and physical poverty and then reporting everything back to them every month. And so 100% of what they give to our pool giving fund called the Collective Fund goes to the projects in our portfolio. We do all of the research and vetting and monitoring of the organizations for our members, those who give to that collective fund. And then every month we send these members a detailed report. Hey, this is what happened this month. This is a progress on the project. These are the financials, what came into this pool giving fund, what went out and where and how it was used. So we have a five-step strategy. I know I've been talking about the strategy that we discovered. Happy to share that. We have kind of boiled it down into a five-step strategy that maximizes the impact of our giving. And so the first one is we analyze the poverty data, the metrics I mentioned earlier, the Joshua Project, the Multidimensional Poverty Index, to find the places in the world with the most need and to identify what those needs are. And so these are the specific metrics that we're trying to improve. And then secondly is we talk with the experts, people like the UN, the World Bank, Oxford, and even guys like at the Joshua Project and IMB and SIM, just to learn, okay, what methods work, what don't work, which ones are most effective, which ones are most sustainable. And then in our third step is we go and evaluate the organizations to find the ones who can best do what the experts suggest and in the places of most need. And so once we find these organizations, you know, we evaluate them, we kind of negotiate costs, what they need to accomplish what we're trying to achieve. We sign contracts with them and then we mobilize funds from our pool giving fund called the collective fund towards those projects. And then they report everything back to us every month. And so what we do is kind of combine all that information and then provide that to our donors every month. And so in other words, it's just a free market approach to giving. It's just, you know, the same thing that our financial advisors do with our giving. It's kind of the same thing a general contractor does when they build a house is they find who can best achieve the results that we want to achieve and empower them to do that, whether that's a return on investment or building a house under your budget. And so today we have five high impact projects in our portfolio in some of those impoverished and unreached places around the world. So India, Bangladesh, Nepal, Pakistan, Uganda, and South Sudan. And, you know, while we're doing this, we also wanted all access to be an example to the charity industry. If we're evaluating organizations, we have to lead in these areas ourselves. You know, we can't not do anything that we're asking other organizations to do. And we just have an opportunity as we're designing this organization from scratch to just design it the way the donor would want it to be designed. And so we purposely tried to design the collective fund to be the most efficient, effective, sustainable, and transparent option for people's giving. That's our hope, at least. That's what we strive 
to do. And one of the things that we did to help accomplish this is make it a hundred percent model where it's a pool giving fund. A hundred percent of what people give to this fund goes directly to these projects. And so people are members of this fund. And so when you go to our, our website and you hit give, everything goes to this fund. And so the natural question is, okay, how do you pull off that hundred percent model at scale? And so what we did and what I'm very grateful for the experts who recommended this is we actually split all access into two independent bank accounts. And so, like I've said, we have that collective fund is that pool giving fund, hundred percent goes to projects. And then we have what we call all access operations, which is a totally independent bank account that is solely supported by a handful of strategic partners who cover our operational expenses so that the collective fund can be hundred percent. That way, you know, Joe Smith in Colorado, who doesn't know who I am, doesn't care who I am. None of his dollars are going to any of our operational costs and just encourages donors to use the collective fund. And what we do for our partners every month is we provide an itemized expense report. So we list, hey, this is when we made this expense. This is what it was for. And this is why. Just trying to encourage transparency. It's their money. So it just makes sense that they see how it's used. And then what we also do is provide that itemized expense report to the public on our annual reports and our financial statements. So anyone can go to our website today and see every expense that we've ever made. And so we just want to see if it could be done. And so far it's going really well. And people have been really receptive of the split model. I would recommend it to anyone who's starting an organization to give it a try and see how it works for them. Lane, something that Keela and I have talked about in the past, kind of on a personal level with donor advised funds is, you know, how to discern when to make a grant to an organization and are there reasons why you wouldn't? Are there reasons why you might save up more in the donor advised fund for any reason? And I'm curious on what your take is on that being, you know, in the role of managing a pooled giving fund. Do you try to grant out money basically as soon as it comes in? Or are there reasons why you might be more strategic with it? Yeah, it's a really good question. And that's why I try to compare us to kind of a fund manager as best I can, because at the end of the day, it's a gut call. You do as much research as you can, but you do try to figure out, okay, what's best in this specific scenario. And so because a large majority of our donations do come from DAFs, from donor advice funds, we do try to get these dollars out of our pocket and into the field as much as possible. We don't want it just sitting in another account that's building and just have this complex string of donor advised funds. But we do try to get it out in the field because that's, A, it helps people. And anytime I see a large amount in our bank account, I'm like, man, that's not helping anybody there. <laughs> and so we try to get that out as fast as we can. But, you know, we obviously have a kind of a minimum limit in our collective fund that we try to keep, try not to go below that. That way we have something just to keep moving forward if everything hits the fan so we can keep supporting our projects. But we also have a cap. We try not to keep too much in there. And it really depends on the project, Cody, to answer your question. Like I said, physical poverty alleviation projects require a little bit more than spiritual poverty projects. And what we've also found is with our level of evaluation and the reporting that we ask for, there's also a minimum that you don't want to go below because it would be a little bit inappropriate. 
to ask all that work from an organization to just get, you know, two cents. And so for us to be transparent, that's been around $50,000 that we feel like if we put in that much as an initial grant, and hopefully there's many more after that, that they can feel comfortable kind of agreeing to our reporting requirements, which we work with our organizations on what works best for them. We have a minimum on the reporting. We work with them on their scheduling and even the format. I mean, I get reports via WhatsApp or Facebook Messenger or email, but it really just depends. So it's highly subjective just on the context of the situation. What we do as kind of a rule of thumb is we never pay for an entire project ourselves. So we want the organization to have some skin in the game. We also want to have a little bit of space for donors to also come on top of that and give. And we've had that pretty much for all of our projects. And so it's highly dependent on the situation. But what we do, Cody, is kind of an iteration of our strategies once a year. So we go through it for spiritual poverty once a year, and then we run through it for physical poverty once a year, and then kind of reevaluate our portfolio and our findings, kind of what we added to our database, and then figure out, okay, this is how much we have in the collective fund, mostly based off the previous year. And this is kind of what we can do for this year. And that really lines up, okay, how many initial grants do we do? How much do we fund for our existing partners in our portfolio? And how much do we keep to kind of leapfrog into next year? Can you give us a little bit more context for what it looks like to evaluate a ministry? So I know you mentioned the five steps. You've already have the information of where the needs are and what you're actually targeting. And now you're at the point of actually looking at different organizations or I guess specific projects is probably more accurate. And how do you guys kind of just think through, is this going to be an effective strategy or is this going to reach what we're trying to do or not? Yeah, absolutely. Keelan love to talk about it because it's a lot different than kind of what's out there currently. And that's why we felt the need for all access to exist. So like we've talked about our strategy before, we have five steps. You know, first one's look at the data. Second one's talk with the experts. The third step is evaluating the organizations. And what we did is we created a five by five matrix that we use to help evaluate these organizations. But everything goes back to who can best improve these poverty levels. So the unreached people groups and physical poverty with the multidimensional poverty index. And so these five areas are kind of our attempt to find who can best improve these poverty levels in the most effective, efficient, sustainable, and transparent manner. And so the first column on this matrix is strategy. And all that really means is, does this organization do what the experts suggest in the regional focus area that we're focusing on? And so that helps boil it down to, you know, there's what, 1.7 million organizations, nonprofit organizations in the United States right now. It's like one for every 200. It helps boil that down pretty quickly to, you know, 50 or 60 that do this one topic, whether that's WASH or planning churches in the specific area, whether that's West Bengal, India or Northern Uganda. So the next step is effectiveness. Okay, how much can they improve the specific poverty level? Is it going from, you know, 54% of people lack access to clean water in the Acholi region of Uganda to 50%? And how can they do that? And so we look at these organizations and their monitoring evaluation process for capturing results, the outputs they put out, 
and the outcomes and how does that result to this poverty level coming down? And so, again, it helps turn something that's pretty subjective, like effectiveness, and make it really, really objective where we're looking at actual numbers and putting them side by side. And that's what's so powerful about these metrics is that it allows you to do that. It allows you to compare organizations side by side in a highly objective, measurable way. And so then our next step is, okay, efficiency. What does it cost to do this? And does it cost one organization more than the other? And if it does, why? Do you get a better outcome? Is it more long-term? So in these five steps, we ask a million questions, but you know, it's looking at the strategy, looking at their effectiveness, and then looking at what does it cost? How efficient are they? And then next is how sustainable is it? Is it just handing out water bottles or is it working with the local community on developing a water source that they actually want for their community and they have a way to maintain it long-term? And how do they do that? So just making sure that investment is worth it in the long run. And then finally, the last step is transparency, is will they agree with our reporting requirements? And that's, like I said, we try to work with the organizations. We don't want to lose them at the step. But if they can't agree with our reporting requirements, which are pretty minimum, then I don't know how they know whether they're effective or not if they don't know what's happening in the field every month. And it's even as simple as, we just want to know, like if you were talking with a friend and you called and said, hey, how was your month? What would they say? You know, we don't make it this giant formal report. We just want to know, hey, what actually happened this month? Did it go as you planned? Did it not? What were your obstacles? And then on a kind of biannual plan, we gather more detailed data. Okay, what were the output and outcome results? And so this five-step matrix really helps boil it down into just a handful that kind of meet our criteria and we find can best improve these poverty levels. And so, you know, to be honest, that all sounded great. It made a lot of sense to us. But when we were starting all access, we really just didn't know, okay, does this work or not? Is there a reason that nobody else is really using this really straightforward and simple strategy? And so we tried it. And so that's actually why we started all access was we had all these pieces together. We just didn't know if it worked. And so I started all access on the side just to see if it did. I didn't even kind of go full time into it. We didn't invest anything in fundraising or marketing. We just pulled together some funds from my family and friends. And we did our first iteration of the strategy to see if it worked. And so we focused on spiritual poverty. The data took us to West Bengal, India, and the experts highly recommended what's called disciple making movement or church planning movement in a very specific type in a very specific way. And then for five months, I researched and looked at organizations and we found one that was really, really effective. We just didn't know who they were. They're really small. This was during COVID also. And so I couldn't get over there. And so we had some friends with some other organizations, well-known organizations who were also stuck in Calcutta. And so they went and evaluated them from a third-party perspective and everything was legitimate and not only legitimate, but really promising. And so we gathered together about $20,000 and we invested it in this small organization called Transform East Alliance and helped them train 100 church planning coordinators over the course of a year. And over the course of that year, they planted 243 churches among 97 unreached people groups with 1,500 new believers and are crushing it. I mean, they're phenomenal. And what we also found is 
kind of the traditional method of sending people like me over there would have cost about $90 million to accomplish the same thing. And so we thought, okay, this strategy, I think, can do something, not just to save us money, but what would happen if that $90 million was used through the strategy? And then we applied it to physical poverty because we thought, well, maybe it works for spiritual poverty, but what about physical poverty? So we did the same thing. The data took us to sub-Saharan Africa. The experts highly recommended northern Uganda and specifically WASH, so water access, sanitation, and hygiene. We evaluated 64 water organizations in Uganda and kind of narrowed it down to about the top three or four. And then we eventually went with an organization called For Africa for their WASH program in the Amaro district of Uganda, which is just east of Gulu in northern Uganda. And what we did is we gathered together about $50,000 in that pool giving fund, you know, as people are giving to it, starting to rise. And, you know, $50,000 for water access could drill maybe two or three, maybe four wells. And was it more than half of wells in Africa are broken over the, after the first year. And so what we did is we helped for Africa, which has a totally nationally led team in Northern Uganda. We helped them purchase a drilling rig truck that will drill more than 400 wells in the Amaro district over the next three or four years. And for Africa and their national team work with communities, their own communities for over two years to make sure that they're able to maintain these water sources. And so that's kind of how this iteration works and the power of it. We did the same thing in South Sudan, looked at 372 organizations, talked with 208, boiled it down to about 40 that we really evaluated, kind of had the top 12 that we interviewed deeply, narrowed it down to four that we loved. And then we were able financially to afford to partner with two of them, Aqua Africa and Farms 2. And that's pretty much where our portfolio is at today. So that's interesting. The organizations you're mentioning, none of which I think I've heard of before. And that brings up my next question, which is, have you found that when you look at the scale of an organization, that when you have relatively small focused ministries that are working in maybe just one region or a small number of regions that they tend to be more effective? Or are there also times where you've seen very large, well-known organizations, you know, in that short list of ministries when you're looking at one of these projects? Yeah, it's a yes and no. So I've seen both. I would say though, Keelan, that the, trend leans more towards the smaller organizations that are regionally focused on a specific topic. But we've also seen large ones that are really effective what they do and tend to have more funds to afford monitoring evaluation process, which is really the key. If they don't have that, you know, we're really not able to know for sure that the outputs and outcomes they share are dependable or trustworthy. And obviously we cross-check all of that but you're right. There is a trend towards really two, I would say, characteristics of really effective organizations. Although what's really encouraging about this model and just how it's dependent on objective metrics is that it doesn't really matter how large the organization is, how small, who their CEO is or what their salary is or what their overhead is. We've seen effectiveness at all levels across the board. But what we have found is that Two things. One is a trend among some of the most effective organizations is that they're nationally led. 
They're either founded by someone who's from the region or they are led by a team that's from the region and know the culture and language and the people groups and the dynamics there. I believe three of our organizations are founded by people from the region, whether that's South Sudan, Uganda, West Bengal. And then the other two are kind of organizations that are in many countries, but they're led in our region and our, our projects by people from the area. And so that's huge. We find those to be not only the most effective numbers-wide, but also the most sustainable because they know what the people want for their own lives. And that's really, really important to us. And a little shameless plug for a book that was instrumental in all access in my life is Walking with the Poor by Dr. Brian Myers. That's kind of our gold standard for sustainability as far as just empowering local believers and local people out of extreme poverty and equipping them with the tools they need and what they want for their own lives. And then the second trend to answer your question is that they are typically smaller programs that are most effective. They're usually pretty lean. And like I said, they're focused on one specific area. They can be within a larger organization, but the program budget is usually laser focused on a specific cause area and region. Lane, something I love about the couple projects you talked about with the church planting and the well drilling is just like you said, there's an aspect of sustainability to it where if a church is planted, it's like a seed being planted, it'll grow and bear fruit. And the same is true for drilling wells. And I'm sure all the projects that you're investing in, because that is part of your core philosophy is to have sustainable ongoing impact. My question is around accountability. So there's a couple layers. So for people who want to partner with all access, you have reporting, which is really, really important. And a lot of people have that as kind of a requirement for any substantial level of giving these days. And I know that you have these reporting requirements from the organizations or projects that you're sponsoring. And I'd love to hear more about kind of the ongoing relationship with those organizations. And if you give a $50,000 grant, if the reporting starts to look like it's trending in the wrong direction, do you step into that? Do you start having conversations around that? Kind of what do you do in that situation? And then how do you know when it's time for you to move on to a new project? Yeah, all really good questions, Cody. And, you know, one of the concerns I would say people have when I would say this approach that is very metric driven is that you kind of lose the relational aspect of it. But I couldn't disagree more. You know, it may start with the metrics, but it always ends with a deep relationship. And so we have a phenomenal relationship with all of our partners in our portfolio. We want them to win, not just in our project, but across the board, because if they win, we win. And so there's a way, if you use the strategy on your own and you're concerned about that relationship aspect and accountability, you just put that in on the end. You know, once you do all the research and find someone who's really effective, get to know them really well and follow up with them and see how it's going. And so that relational aspect is huge to us. I mean, it's every day I'm in contact with these partners. Like I said, we started all access during COVID. So we've run projects with COVID absolutely running through Northern India. And so we had reports back for our first project with, hey, we can't do anything this month, Lane, because we're just trying to find places to bury bodies. 
And it was that bad. That was their ministry opportunity right there. And so obviously it's a real world. And I think one of the most, the largest misconceptions in development and maybe even reaching unreached people groups is, these are really difficult contexts. And so if you're like a large foundation and you're really driven on these specific numbers, and if they're not getting hit, just abandoning them, they're always not going to get hit. I mean, that's always difficult. It's our job to try to help them do that. And, you know, even right now with kind of the financial situation that's happening here, well, believe it or not, but it's a lot worse in a lot of other places. I mean, we have costs going up almost three times in Pakistan for our project there with resources they need. Same thing kind of happening in northern Uganda and South Sudan. And we want to work through all those with them and also invite donors into that process to get to know the organizations in our portfolio. Yeah, they use us for the evaluating and the funding part, but we want to get our donors to know these organizations really well. And so we're constantly monitoring the projects in our portfolio. And anytime we get data back, which we get every six months is kind of hard data on the outputs and outcomes that we agree with when we start the project. There's never a time we don't ask questions about those numbers and whether they're really high. And we're like, okay, how did you get those? Let's see your kind of paperwork. Or if they're really low, it's kind of like, hey, what happened and, and how can we help? And then we cross-check those with other organizations and, hey, do these look normal? Is there anything that kind of stands out or, you know, other organizations that also work in those areas? We kind of run it by them and, and say, okay, this looks on track for what we're seeing in the field. And so there's a lot of accountability there. But what we do is every year we run fresh iterations through our entire strategy. So we start from scratch, look at the data again, talk with the experts again, evaluate the organizations again. And that helps us discern, okay, are there opportunities that we want to add to our portfolio as we're increasing amounts? And we also kind of look at the timeline of the projects that we're in. And most of them are multi-year projects. We look at the funding, how much do they lack? So say we agreed to come alongside a $235,000 project. We put in 50. So for example, our, I'm talking about our project in Pakistan right now as an example. We put in 50. We had a bunch of college students down at Texas A&M put in another 120 for it. So we're closing that gap. And then we're in constant contact with the organization on, okay, what funding what's left in that balance because we're talking about all designated funds. So we need to know what's remaining. And so we just analyze that, how much do they have left and some projects end and then we can't find anything better. So we do like what we did in West Bengal and Bangladesh is we doubled it is, Hey, let's also do this in Bangladesh. And then we just expanded into Nepal. And so I know that's not a very straightforward answer, Cody, but it's all because it depends and going back to that fund manager example is we're weighing all of these opportunities, whether the opportunities are out there or the experts still suggesting Northern Uganda or are they also suggesting places like Chad or Nijar in South Sudan. And then opportunities like what's happening in Pakistan, which a lot of people don't know about, but they had a severe flood in the fall. And we're typically not like an emergency organization. There's already a lot of really good organizations that do that. But this organization that we partnered with, Big Life, we looked at their data and we saw a huge spike. And it's because in 2020, there was another monsoon in Pakistan and it allowed them into an area that was usually really difficult to reach and wouldn't be so welcoming to other people from different people group in Pakistan. But they were allowed in to help. 
and it gave them access to share the gospel in these regions. And they saw over 20,000 people be baptized, not just come to faith, but actually be baptized and turn from Islam in these regions. And so we saw that and we saw the flooding that happened in the fall. And so we talked to them about doing it again and using this to try to get into more people groups who not only were in need of the gospel, but were also really suffering and just trying to find where their next meal was coming from. And so it's, there's a lot of factors at play in deciding, okay, where do we go and what do we do? But our hope is that if anyone took our strategy or five-step process and did the same thing we did, run through it every year, that they would actually find that they come to very similar results at the end as far as who they partner with and what they're focused on and for how much. So you've talked through a whole bunch of research and information that you guys have learned and pulled together. And I'm sure that you have a very kind of clear way of thinking through a lot of these problems now in your head. I'd love to hear what kind of common misconceptions about giving or poverty alleviation that you see or hear still commonly all around and how you would kind of speak into those. Oh boy, how much time do we have? (laughs) Because it's a big topic and there are a lot of misconceptions out there about giving and poverty alleviation. And, you know, and these are some of the ones I had as well. Even, you know, two, three years ago, as All Access was getting started, I was still thinking in older terms. And there are a lot of misconceptions there because the charity industry, unfortunately, has kind of been forced to promote these misconceptions. And so, I mean, I can think of five or six that I can just kind of list off, you know, starting from organization size and overhead, you know, misconception would be, okay, this organization is larger than the other. That means they must be better or more effective. And that's not necessarily the case. In fact, it's probably the opposite. You know, the smaller ones still have a little more grit and they're usually focused on a smaller area. And organization size is really just to show that they're very successful at fundraising. doesn't necessarily mean that they're successful at actually helping people. And then the same for overhead. The big myth with overhead. Another plug would be Dan Pallotta, a book called Uncharitable. It's a phenomenal book that honestly corrected me on my own misconceptions about overhead and efficiency. And it's a thick book with a lot of references. You can also go watch a 17-minute TED Talk that basically summarizes the book. But essentially, overhead is not a reflection of how effective an organization is either. You know, if it's too small, they probably don't have M&E process. They probably aren't managing those dollars effectively. If it's too large, it's kind of inefficient and more could probably go to the field. And so it's a weird balance. And that's why, to be honest, we look at overhead, but it's not a huge factor in our deciding piece because none of our dollars go there anyway, because it doesn't reflect how effective an organization is. And then another one would just be what effectiveness really means. You know, there's a lot of books on Amazon, on effective giving or impact giving, a lot of those are still focused on kind of the donor side of it, of donor advice funds or non-cash giving or state giving. Very little is actually on what's in the best interest of those in need. And that's really all we care about. Yeah, we care about donors and how they give, but there's also already a lot of really good resources out there that help them with that. We care about what it actually does when it leaves their pocket and it goes somewhere. And so, you know, for effectiveness, 
you know, I would look at an organization's mission statement. Okay, what is the organization saying they're trying to accomplish and how effective are they at accomplishing that? A lot of people give and maybe don't realize that the organization doesn't even try to accomplish that. They have a different mission statement altogether. And, and really an M&E process is huge in this, a monitoring evaluation, which is a standard for how they capture their output and outcomes. So whether that's live saved or wells drilled, none of that really matters if it doesn't improve the outcomes like when the UN says 1.3 billion people live in extreme poverty. They're referencing the multidimensional poverty index. And if these outcomes don't help improve that next year, guess what? The UN's going to say 1.3 billion people still live in poverty. Although we you know, may have drilled a bunch of wells, they weren't less than a 15 minute walk from these people, or they weren't in a place that has a need for water. And then another thing would be kind of a popular one would be the impact per dollar, which is an important factor, but it's not the only factor. Again, we don't even use this in our own lives. We don't look at the cheapest stocks. We don't look at the cheapest products at the grocery store. We find the ones that most effectively accomplish our goals. And even impact per dollar won't necessarily end poverty. If you want to get the biggest impact per dollar in Uganda, you go to southern Uganda, where there's need, but there's less poverty. Nobody's going to rush to northern Uganda, where most of the extreme poverty is, because it's more expensive. And so, although a really helpful tool, and I encourage those who focus on impact per dollar to continue to do that, because we look at those as well, as far as that cost, but at the end of the day, it's not going to end poverty. And then... Another one, uh, as far as misconception of giving, would be accreditors. Uh, again, when people kind of see those stamps at the bottom of the websites and the seals, they just assume, hey, this is a good, effective organization. I haven't found that to be true. And the accreditors aren't even saying that. You know, None of them are really claiming, hey, this is an effective ministry. This is one that can help alleviate poverty. They're usually looking at things like governance or, you know, like GuideStar, ask for transparency. So are there 990s available? And all that stuff is stuff we submit, you know, for these SILs and, and standards. So you're still getting information from the organization themselves. And so I would just encourage people to use the accreditors the way they were meant to be used and kind of get to know them more to know, okay, what does this SEAL actually mean? And then the last one, really two, last two would be generosity in general. I think there's a really, really cool generosity movement happening in the giving world right now in philanthropy, which is huge. We need that, but it's not necessarily going to end poverty if we don't have this other part of, hey, what does this actually do when it hits the field? We can give more, but if it's just going to more ineffective and inefficient programs, it's not going to help anybody. What happens, though, if we combine these two, if we are giving generously to really effective programs and holding them accountable, that's a incredible one-two punch right there. And even donors who give a little, if they do it really well, they can actually have more impact than philanthropists. Going back to our example in West Bengal with a bunch of people from farms in Southeast Texas like me, you know, pulled together $20,000 that actually had more impact than maybe philanthropists who were giving, you know, $90 million to it. And so we just encourage people to consider the effectiveness part of generosity as well. And then finally, the last one would be the tithe. That's kind of, I would say, the biggest one for us in kind of the Christian world is, Lane, I'm supposed to give all my money or at least 10% of it to the local church. And I actually wrote a white paper my 
kind of thesis paper at DTS was on the tithe. And as I was getting all these questions and, you know, obviously I don't want to get into all of that right now. It's probably not the purpose of it, but a lot of people just don't know that the new Testament doesn't strictly say you have to give 10% to the church and doesn't mean you shouldn't. I encourage it. We do, but that's a common theme that I have to let people know. And I'm happy to share that white paper with anyone who's interested in nerding out in kind of the Greek and Hebrew of it. And then finally, to answer your question on the poverty alleviation side is particularly when I kind of throw out phrases like ending poverty, it's kind of an out there, seems very abstract. Obviously, these metrics help boil that down into tangibles. But a lot of people just assume, okay, that means everywhere on the, around the world is going to look like us and going to have houses like us and jobs like us and packed schedules like us and <laughs> mental health crises like us. And that's not necessarily the case. When you actually talk with the people on the ground, very little actually want what we have. They just want a little bit better than what they have. They love their lifestyle and their culture, and that's something we should celebrate. And there's a lot of pros that we should probably take from that as well. But they also don't want their kids dying before their fifth birthday from a preventable disease like diarrhea. Or they don't want to drink dirty water or have to trek you know, for an hour one way to get dirty water. And they want access to the gospel, at least access to it. And that's all we're trying to do is just give them access to these things and listen to what they actually want for their own lives and do the best we can to help them achieve that. Well, Lane, what are you most excited about when you think about the future for all access? Oh, man, I am really optimistic. It hasn't been easy so far, kind of coming in with a different strategy and a different approach and maybe even kind of one that could be offensive. You know, we obviously we don't want to make people feel like their giving wasn't effective before. We just want to invite them into the future that's ahead of us because it's really, really bright. Particularly, I'm really encouraged among millennials and Gen Zs. We kind of have an interesting donor base where we have both kind of family offices and people who want to give strategically and we get to help with that. And then we have a bunch of millennials and Gen Zs, kind of a younger audience who, from what we found, they hate injustice. They hate it, but they also don't trust charity and they definitely don't trust the church. And so they don't know what to do with these feelings. And so we kind of hit this interesting niche of we get to help them just give effectively because they see where money goes. And so we're encouraged, Cody and Keelan, about Gen Z and millennials on kind of where they're headed. They may not have as much money right now as some of the older generations, but they want to give effectively. They won't give if it doesn't, as what we found. And, you know, the metrics are going to continue to get better. They're not perfect as they are right now, but they'll continue to get better. You know, the experts will continue to get better information. The organizations, I think, will start to think in ways that are metric driven and have monitoring evaluation processes. So it's only up from here. I am just encouraged by what I see and really the just the generosity of other organizations. We are highly indebted to collaboration. That's what we do you know, with our experts and our organizations and donors. And I've just been so encouraged by organizations being willing to share information and not see it as a competition anymore. So I'm just really encouraged about the future. Our hope is for just all people and particularly the United States to know who you are and be inclined to use the service. That's our goal is just to put it in front of them and give them access to this and hope that they'll use it. And 
you know, as well as share with other organizations. Hey, this is what we do. Feel free to take it. If you can do it better than us, man, more power to you. Is there anything we can do better? We'd love to learn. And so I'm just so excited about the direction it's headed and the industry as a whole. And I really believe that we could be the generation that sees a world where all people have access to the gospel and the basic means of physical well-being if we use the strategy. And so we're trying to share it as much as we can, encourage people to use it as much as we can. It's a little bit different strategy than what's out there, but it's the same strategy we use every day when we go to the grocery store, we go to the restaurant, we just find the best products or services that best accomplish our goals. And so we already know the strategy works. It's very robust. People use it all the time. We're just encouraging them to apply it to their giving. And not only will it make it a lot more effective, but it'll also make it a lot more rewarding as well. And so a lot more fun. And like Brian Grasso, my friend with Simple Charity would say, it's provide solidarity with the poor. And that's what we're trying to do as well. Awesome. Well, as we get to the end of the episode here, I did want to leave some time for our manager's minute. We like to end every episode with one practical action our listeners can take to step into their role as stewards and manage God's wealth wisely. So do you have a suggestion for our listeners today? Yes, absolutely. It would be to give this strategy a try, whether that's through all access towards you know ending spiritual and physical poverty, or if you have another mission that you're passionate about, whether that's human trafficking or this or that, just I encourage you to try this giving strategy to start looking at organizations as a means to an end. They're a service. You know, they're there because, you know, if you give to compassion because you can't fly down to South America or, or to Africa and teach and mentor that child. So you pay compassion to do it. That's what we want to encourage donors to start doing with the organizations they give to is see them as a means to an end. And then also as they're using the strategy to kind of see it the same way they see any other expense in their line item. You know, my wife and I, we love Mexican food. And so when I go to a Mexican restaurant, I look at the menu and I try to figure out, okay, what do I want? And is the cost worth it? You know, are those enchiladas really worth that much? Or I might as well get fajitas. <laughs> Use the same strategy when we give. And I don't have to tell myself, you're really passionate about Mexican food. So you should go spend more money on that. My spending is a reflection of what I'm already really passionate about. And so we just encourage people to see this as another expense when they give. Just let it be a reflection of what you're passionate about. And when you hold organizations accountable and you come alongside them to achieve these metrics, you'll find that you will become even more passionate about it as you get to know them. That's my suggestion is just to try this giving strategy and see what you think. Try it for yourself and see the results. And I guarantee it'll not only be effective, but it will be a really, really rewarding experience. And where can people find more about All Access International if they want to learn more about what you guys are doing or join in? Yes, you can go to allaccessinternational.org and you can see our giving strategy on there. You can see all of our expenses on there. Pretty much everything's online. And then you're also welcome to reach out to me. That's one of the really cool side effects of this job is being a fund manager is it's all relational. So I know all of our donors and try to get to know all of them. And so I encourage people just to reach out and ask questions and we don't have anything to hide. So we're willing to share everything that works and doesn't work. And I would love to come alongside them and just get to know them and help them on their own giving journey and their own mission statements for their lives and help them just be really effective at what God's called them to do, whether that's through all access towards 
ending spiritual and physical poverty or if it's somewhere else. Well, thanks so much for joining us today, Lane. It's been a pleasure getting to know you and a little more about All Access International. I'm really excited about this framework that you've laid out, this vision that you have that no one person can do on their own, but with your foundation and scripture and the partnerships and all of the knowledge and experience that you're gaining. Really excited to see what God does through you over the coming decades and uh, wish you all the best. Thanks so much, Cody. And thank you, Cody and Keelan, for having me on. It's a real honor to be here. Hey, thanks so much for listening to the show, guys. If you have questions about setting up Financial Finish Line, the Finish Line movement, or anything else you heard on the show today, we'd love to hear from you. And now I have a quick question for you. Do you know anyone who's living a life filled with generosity, purpose, and mission? If so, we'd love to talk to them. They don't need to have a financial finish line, and they don't have to have all the answers. Just a heart to steward God's wealth to the best of their ability. If you know someone like that, we'd be honored if you would connect us. You can reach us on Instagram at finishlinepledge, through our website at finishlinepledge.com, or by email at hello at finishlinepledge.com. Finally, if you want to find any of our references or links from today's show, you can always find them in our show notes at finishlinepledge.com slash episode 72. That's all for today. We'll see you next time. <music>